It is my pleasure to introduce the first speaker of the morning, Dr. Neil Bhatia. He is an assist Associate Clinical Professor of Dermatology at the University of Wisconsin Medical School. He is a, in private practice in Milwaukee and has a background in immunology. He has published and lectured extensively on the subject of medical management of actinic keratoses and non-melanoma skin cancer. He will be presenting a review of the current and future therapies and their applications. Please welcome Dr. Bhatia. All righty. Well, good morning. I don't see too many hangovers, so I think we're in good shape. So, uh, it's a privilege to be here in, uh, in front of all of you, and thanks for inviting me. And uh, I'm going to throw a lot of stuff at you, so there's. Uh, I'm going to get for questions afterwards, and a lot of is in the handout. If you have any questions, just refer to that, and we can go from there. <coughs> okay. And I want to, again, I want to thank you guys for all having me. These are my relevant disclosures. And it's always proud to be from Wisconsin, where now we can fight cancer with beer. So we're in a, we're in a good state of research. And uh, I always have concerns about uh, different levels of pH supervision. So if you see these two characters, just ask them how tightly they need to be supervised. So I think Warren and Jeremy are still somewhere in the back. OK. <clears throat> so I'm going to be talking a little bit about actinic keratosis and skin cancer as far as their medical management, and I want you to keep these, four question, these five questions in mind, especially in the terms of the first one. Why do we even need to bother to treat actinic keratosis, and why do some people need the full treatment of medical management, not just what we do to them in the office? I was talking to a few of you last night about you know, different therapies and how they work and what are their mechanisms, and it's important to keep in mind that actinic keratosis is a, is a club. It's, a, it's not a sprint disease, it's a marathon. It's not a rash we take care of and it's all done. It's, basically something you enter and you keep going. So that's a way to really think about the process as far as how things start, how they continue, and how to keep going as far as maintaining them and, and uh, preventing them. And this is really the reason why. It's because non-melanoma skin cancer is an epidemic. We'd see, and in this graph in 2006, there were over a million new cases of non-melanoma skin cancer. And more importantly, that in incidence is rising exponentially. And we're seeing it not just in 50 and 60-year-olds. We're seeing it in 30-year-olds. The tanning bed epidemic, if you will, has not helped matters much, and more importantly, it's surveillance on the non-dermatology end that's becoming less and less helpful because people are not coming in for regular screenings as they should be with their cholesterol, hypertension, and other medical problems. So we need to keep skin cancer screening on the forefront as far as not just recognition, but also keeping some sort of log in our own clinic as well as who's a high-risk candidate and how often we're seeing them back. So part of the problem is that actinic keratosis really isn't an, a reported diagnosis, and it's not really being you know, um, thought, uh, thought of as something seriously to be uh, challenged as far as how much, uh, how aggressive we're treating them. And if you see in the bottom number, look at the number of patients in, uh, oops, sorry, the number of uh, people in Australia <clears throat> at an earlier age and more males basically compared to the United Kingdom, obviously because of the demographics, but also because of the ozone. So again, it's an epidemic that we need to keep an eye on <clears throat> as far as not just how we're treating, but who we're treating. And the important populations, including the immunosuppressed crowd, the transplant crowd, get a lot of attention. But even the 30- and 40-year-olds now who are not using sunblock routinely, those who are not getting enough uh, solar protection, those who are caught up in the vitamin D debate, we need to make sure that they're getting adequate surveillance and medical management as well. Okay. I think it's important to keep in mind our own practice routine and how often we're seeing patients back. If you're seeing someone back once a year because they're high risk, that's a good screening. But 
be a little bit more aggressive, someone who's already had skin cancer, someone who's got high risk of actinic keratosis, someone who's a little bit more immunosuppressed, you know, with CLL or diabetes, for example, and, of course, someone who's had, had a couple different skin cancers in their family and who's at higher risk of developing more than, than others. So keep those in mind. The other thing to keep in mind is you'll, we'd see now that after all the data on some of the new medications coming out and some that have already been there, that we have to treat the ones that are on their way as well as the ones that we see. And without treating the field and the process of, of the photo damage, this is going to become an ongoing battle. So it's important to keep in mind that the actinic keratosis that we see has 10 new ones coming next to it. What's also important is that there's a process. And if you look at it from a systematic standpoint, basically the disease we're dealing with is photo damage, the symptoms are the actinic keratosis, and the endpoint is skin cancer. So all of it is really a spectrum rather than just one individual problem. So it's important to keep all these in mind as we're treating not just the field, but we're treating all the areas around it. And that goes along with, you know, Perception. You know, patients are thinking, well, sunscreens are causing skin cancer. I need more vitamin D, so I should lay out. And, you know, why should I even use moisturizers? Because they're causing skin cancer. So we're really fighting an uphill battle, not only in the media, but in the perception of... Okay. Doing okay here? Over this one. Sorry, can you guys hear me? Okay. So I mentioned the word process, and again, this is an investment. You know, it's not the sun damage that people got yesterday that creates skin cancer. It's the sun damage from 30 or 40 years of, of sun tanning or even just working outdoors without protection that creates the investment over time. And if you look at the mutation cascades, oh gosh, come on. There we go. Let's try this again. Sorry. If you look at the mutations that progress, all of them have a flow, and they all have an end product and if we think about where we can put a puzzle piece of how the therapies work into the framework of how the disease state is made, we can actually put things into a long-term pattern of, of how we can control the amount of squamous cells that are developed. And again, this goes back to what we do in the office as well as to what we need to have patients be doing individually as far as not just with their skin type, but how much sun damage they've actually had and how much they can tolerate. So think about how everything works. For example, the, you know, the green tea modulators, for example... How do they actually work? Well, they work by bringing in antioxidants. They have um, different effects on ultraviolet-induced erythema and how much they work on the uh, thymidine dimers as far as the amount of photocarcinogenesis. Think about amiquimod, for example. It works by augmenting the immune response that's already in place and using inflammation as its mechanism to fight off the targets, not only, again, what we see, but the investment of photodamage that's developing. Think about how 5-FU works, for example. It works on epidermal turnover, modifies keratinization defect, and basically has local effects that don't really do anything to the long-term process but work on the epidermis that's already, infect or already involved in the actinic keratosis process. How about diclofenac as far as its mechanism? Well, we found out from different research that ultraviolet light stimulates keratinocytes to create higher levels of cyclooxygenase and phospholipase A. And if you remember the prostaglandin cascade, that's where prednisone works on the, on the uh, phospholipase, and that's where nonsteroidals work on the cyclooxygenase pathways to inhibit prostaglandins. But what happens in irradiated keratinocytes is there are higher populations of prostaglandin E, which stimulates more epidermal turnover and more angiogenesis to help the tumor basically grow a little bit faster. So the result of that, by inhibiting that is, oh, sorry, the result of that is <clears throat> blocking that cyclooxygenase pathway Therefore, we can in inhibit the amount of um, activity of the prostaglandins 
and therefore there's less and less epidermal turnover in a neoplastic fashion. Okay? Same thing that goes along with the new drugs like inganol mebutate, for example. We see the uh, dual mode of action with local necrosis as well as the induction of cytokines developing as far as the target antigens, but also the amount of photodamaged antigen that's developing in the skin where we can see a little bit more uh, of the early photodamaged uh, skin becoming more repaired over time, but with the short-term action of, of inganol mebutate, it also has more direct cytotoxicity. And then how do the catechins work? Well, we again talked about antioxidants, but how they fit in the framework of skin cancer is different than how they fit into the framework of warts. So we'll see how those immunomodulators fit into our cascade as we, as we go along the process. Finally, thinking too as far as just the epidermal you know, component and the keratinization defect with 5-FU, there's also the impact of the stratum corneum as well as what's happening on the upper levels of the skin, and that's where keratolytics might have their benefit. Things like lactic, lactic acid, for example, they have a benefit of turning over those top layers of skin, allowing the other medications perhaps to penetrate a little bit easier. So if we put all that into a framework, think about where everything would fit. So sunscreens, obviously, would fit right in the beginning of the process to slow everything down. We'd use Imiquimod, for example, to, again, survey for the mutation products that are already being shown in active actinic keratosis lesions, but also in the subclinical lesions that are progressing, progressing, and that's where the mutation cascade can be slowed down from their, that standpoint. Diclofenac would work in a similar fashion, although it's not going to be as in, uh, pro-inflammatory. It's going to be working on slowing down that epidermal turnover from the prostaglandin activity. <clears throat> Topical 5, if you already showed you where that fits in in the uh, epidermal cascade, but this is where it fits in the mutation cascade. Again, surveying, looking for the products that are already turning over rapidly, but it's not doing a lot for the process before that. Retinoids, however, do affect a lot with the differentiation cascade. It also affects as, an, as a uh, neurotransmitter and can show over, over time long-term suppression of squamous cell carcinoma in the transplant crowd, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And then inganol mebutate, I already showed you where that kind of fits in on its dual mode of action, but this is Again, it's broad-spectrum action on the whole cascade. Finally, the synecatechins, again, the antioxidants are all over, and again, their activity can be translated all over into the cascade. And then finally, we keep in mind that all of that skin is ultraviolet suppressed. And basically, if you remember from what PUVA does, three minutes of ultraviolet B or ultraviolet A creates a, a suppression of the activity of mast cells, of dendritic cells, and lymphocytes. So think about what 30 years of ultraviolet B will do to unprotected skin. It's basically creating an immunosuppressed environment so that all of these mutations are actually rolling downhill at a rapid level the more that the immunosuppression you know, kicks in over time. And this is basically what we're trying to stop. Okay, so now that we put that framework together, let's think about how our therapies work and where we can apply them to the long-term management of this disease state. Because now that we've outlined where the disease state you know, basically takes hold and where the therapies might fit mechanistically, Let's think about their realities. And think about diclofenac, for example. This is some of the data from a phase three trial. They took about 420 patients, randomized them to different dosage protocols. There was 30, 60, and 90 days, which, you know, again, is, a, is quite a bit of investment in time for patients to use. But that's, again, going back to the marathon concept of what we're treating. And when, when we're giving different topicals to patients, they're thinking, well, you know, shouldn't I be using this for a short time? And they have to keep in mind, we're doing something to a disease state. We're not treating a rash that's going to go away and not come back. So this was data showing about 30, 60, 90 days and then surveying them 30 days after their completion of age. So you can add 30 days to each study arm. And again, you're seeing 47% completion, or, uh, complete clearance in the 90-day the arm, and that's a, at a 120-day survey. Okay? 
what we probably are doing more in the clinic is something more in combination. And this is some data that talks about using the two together. And if, of course, with liquid nitrogen as well as you know, diclofenac over that same time frame, you can see there's about an 89% clearance of what we see in front of us. And again, complete clearance in a study that's monitored by the FDA is not just clearance of the lesion. It's clearance histologically and resolution of the skin defect. So there has to be a really good cosmetic outcome to show that there's no residual so for something to be called complete clearance. And we're not doing that in the office. We're looking for clearance of what we see in front of us and trying to get those lesions to go away. We're not worried so much about the, the cosmetic outcome that fits the criteria, but we are worried about what happens under the microscope. And that's where this reduction of lesions comes in as well as what's happening under the microscope in the field being more important. And what we see with this diclofenac data is it does help with cryosurgery, but again, we have to think about what's going on in the whole sense of the, the treatment field. And that's why we have to work over time, as well as over the forehead, the temples, dorsal hands, and rotate areas that are heavily photo damaged to make sure we're not missing any areas of, of heavy sun. <clears throat> but again, here's 120 days out in the fourth quadrant. You see, again, there's, there's really not a brisk reaction that you see with diclofenac gel. At the same time, though, we are seeing a reduction in lesion count, which is important for what the patients want over time. And I think with everyone you're, <clears throat> you're putting on some of these marathon treatments, Make sure they're taking photos. Make sure once a month they have a milestone of what they're seeing as far as clearance and how many lesions they're actually making sure that they've lost count of. And if you make a little map with them at their visit, their, their spouse or they'll remember each time to keep an eye out for which ones have cleared and which ones are, are staying. This is some data talking about one-year follow-up. And again, we're probably, you know, depending on where you work, you might have some patients who are lost to follow-up, for example, or some who only can come in once a year, or some of those who are traveling long distance. So, excuse me. So then <clears throat> think about this data where it talks about 90 days of treatment, reassessment at 30 days after, and then again one year after as far as looking at how much clearance they had. And if you see here in this graph, at the end point of 30 days stopping towards the end, and then a year later there was still a determination of 77% reduction from the baseline. So there is some reliability in saying, okay, even if we give these patients three months or if they can only afford three-month supply, they're still getting the benefits of the drug a year later, and we're giving them at least something to, to work for. But again, we have to keep in mind how much sun damage they have, how many hyperkeratotic papules they have, and how much actual photo damage investment over time are they going to be at high risk, as well as what's their risk profile. Okay. You might have heard a little bit about some of a black box warning or a letter from the FDA about Volterran gel. Volterran gel is not the same as Solarase gel. Volterin gel is a 1% gel that's used for basically uh, topical management of arthritic pain or, or bony pain, for example. It's not the same as the Solarase gel that we use in the clinic. That's a 1%. But what they found was actually a few transaminase bumps. So keep in mind that that letter has to do more with the oral version of diclofenac as well as, not, as the 1% gel of, that's branded Volterin. It has nothing to do with a black box warning or anything that inhibits what we do. And again, their dosage protocol is much different. They're using two to four grams four times a day with no set time frame, whereas we use solar rays gel in the clinic at a much limited amount twice a day to keep so been for a definitive time frame. So keep in mind that has nothing to do with what we do. I was uh, switching gears over about topical 5-FU, and you know, 5-FU has been the, the, the dinosaur of dermatology, if you will. It's also had a resurgence, and it also has its role because in someone who's got heavy photo damage and very heavy crusting and that, uh, that ruddy epidermal look, 5-FU is a good drug to kind of get that sprint of that uh, turnover going so that we can get a little bit of clearance up front. The problem with that is that clearance is not sustained, 
And as I mentioned before, it's not doing anything to modify the process. So keep that framework in mind, not to say that 5-FU doesn't work, it just has its place because where people were once doing spot treatment, they were only getting the epidermal component and missing any dermal component that might already be invasive. So try to put 5-FU into its framework because it's not the concept of, okay, we're treating and then all of a sudden they're done for a year or they're good to go and everything's clear. They need sustained follow-up as well as multiple courses. And what we saw with this data is one, about 140-some patients were treated. They all had about 5 AKs or more. They got liquid nitrogen a month after the one-week burst of Carac, which was a 0.5% cream. It's 10, you know, 10 times less than the 5% cream of Effudex. But what's more important is there's 62% you know, treatment with the combo, but that treatment is, that benefit is sustained to a point, but it's not sustained for the long term. So it's important to keep in mind how much actual clearance, and again, this is a reduction in lesion count. It's not complete clearance of the field areas. And it's not, we also don't know what's happening histologically based on that data. So keep all of that into a framework. But it does show some reliability where we need it to work. So now if we put all those together and say, or how would they all compare head-to-head, -head, for example, there was a study that was done in, in Germany where they looked at you know, the arms of imiquimod, 5-FU, and liquid nitrogen together, and they randomized the patients into different groups and looked at them one year later. Now keep in mind that the protocols for this is basically do, you know, quite different from what we would do in the office. Here's patients with getting liquid nitrogen 20 to 40 seconds per, per lesion. Now how many of you do... 20 to 40 seconds per lesion when you're in the office. I mean, they're not going to get that many to come back. So keep in mind also, though, that the Amiquimod arm was only used for four weeks. And we don't use Amiquimod for four weeks. We use it for 16 weeks, according to label. Or we do a month on, month off, or some sort of protocol that's, again, quite a bit longer. So this is all looking at four weeks data, not 16 weeks data. So keep all that in mind that the, the protocols were a bit different. And they were all randomized for what we would see, you know, a little bit less in the, in the clinic pattern of what we do. But what's more important is looking at the clinical clearance, you see a pretty good amount for the 5-FU arm and the Miquimod arm up front, a little bit more you know, sustained and localized for the liquid nitrogen arm. And we'd expect that from what we'd see immediately for individual spots. What we wouldn't see is the sustained clearance of the field with the other therapies. Again, liquid nitrogen is not doing anything to the lesion next to it, and 5-FU isn't doing anything to the process of the photodamaged antigens that we already talked about in that cascade. So it's important to keep in mind where is every therapy going to have its role and where is it going to be benefiting those patients in the long term. And if you see the data here at four weeks, it'll be important to extrapolate what's it going to be at 16 weeks and what's it going to be at 32 and 48 weeks. Because, again, this is not a rash we're treating. This is the long-term management of, of skin cancer that we're trying to prevent. What's also important down here is the cosmetic outcome. You can see 81% improvement versus 4% improvement in the 5-FU arm. That, again, goes back to what's going on not only in the epidermis, but in the dermal stroma as far as repair of the photodamaged skin as well as the resolution of what's left behind. So remember, imiquimod doesn't do anything to the epidermis. It's just working on the components of inflammation that promote activity against tumor antigen that's already in place. And if you remember, even from the basics of imiquimod, you can put it on normal skin and nothing's going to happen because you don't have an antigen to work on but you can put 5-FU on normal skin and it's going to turn it over if it's already rapidly turning over already. Okay? So keep in mind those mechanisms as we go along some of this data. And that's where one of my patients here, for example, you can see where he was treating, all of his spots are lighting up on his cheeks, but he's got brisk erythema, a little bit of, of scaling, but there's not that heavy epidermal turnover or crusting like you'd see with someone who had 5-FU treatment or someone who had you know, liquid nitrogen directly and they see a little bit of, of necrosis. That, again, is the 
effect of the dermis and the inflammation that process is being recruited, not the t- epidermal turnover that we would see. But, you know, his skin actually turned out to look pretty good a month after he was done with treatment. I mean, he's not getting any beauty contest at 75 years old, but at least he, you can see that there's some textural difference and some areas of improvement. Now, the problem with, you know, the old Amiquimod days was, you know, it was really the concept of no pain, no gain. And you'd see some horrific reactions like this at week four of treatment already, but that's because he had a lot of tumor antigen. There's a lot of actinic keratosis on the way. There's probably some early skin cancer in there, but there's heavy photo damage that's basically lighting up where the cream was going to work. And he wasn't even applying the cream in all those areas and still developing satellite reactions. So here again at week 12, you can see he's starting to slow his reactions down. But again, he's going to need a lot more lesion count. He's going to need a lot more treatment to reduce that lesion count. Okay? So how do we get the benefits of, you know, the, the surveillance of the immune system without those brisk reactions. And that, what we can answer now is, is what we have in the new 3.75% imiquimod that's coming out. And then we'll see basically how that fits into our framework as far as a treatment plan because now we've gone from twice a week for 16 weeks to every day for two weeks on, two weeks off for six weeks. And we'll show you how that comes to play as far as the you know, comparisons. So again, you know, the new imiquimod, which goes under the name Zyclera, is going to be... A, a different dosage protocol, but if you can see here, it's a lot less, a lot less frequency, I'm sorry, a lot less uh, duration with a little bit higher frequency at a different strength. So what's important to remember in the studies that were done was that over 96% of those patients stayed in the, in the study protocol and didn't drop out because they could tolerate the new strength. And if you notice here, this is, this is the breakdown of how the studies were developed for the two drugs. Keep in mind that we had bigger surface area, 200 centimeters, as an entire phase versus less than 25 centimeters squared. You had more hyperkeratotic papules that were treated versus the non-hyperkeratotic papules. And it was, again, a different dosage protocol daily, two weeks on, two weeks off, versus twice a week for 16 weeks. What's also important to keep in mind, and you'll hear more about this over time, is that there was no benefit for pushing through to the point of doing it just every day for six weeks straight because the, the benefits of the therapeutic interval kept the activity of the drug going even on the off times of application. But what they actually found in an arm that was done in a separate study where they did push through straight for six weeks was there was no benefit in the treatment. There was no benefit in the actinic keratosis count, nor was there any change in the reaction pattern. So really, for those patients, you want to keep in mind saying, well, why don't we just go through the whole six weeks? There's really no benefit to doing that. And you'll hear more about that as we go along with some more experience with this strength of the drug. And you'll hear more about the tolerability and things from the, um, as far as the erythema standpoint, as far as the reaction standpoint. Looking at the study protocol, though, the, there was a bit of more erythema, but the, the other basically local effects were significantly less as far as any uh, myalgias, any flu-like symptoms, anything we might have heard about systemic effects from amiquimod, as well as any epidermal change or any itching or pain. But it's important to remember as far as putting it into your framework and as far as what we do in the offices, where we want to freeze, where we want to put things into you know, perspective of how we follow up. And if you think, too, about your Medicare patients, which are the ones we are treating more often than not, we have to think about 14-day windows of treatment versus you know, how much time is left in between. So, for example, if you put this into a paradigm of, okay, you start patients on Zyclera for the baseline, you treat them for two weeks, you see them back, at this stage you have maximum expression of subclinical count into true actinic keratosis that you can identify, this is where you actually want to freeze those patients. 
Okay, so what I do is I start them out at baseline, I survey them, give them a dosage protocol that says, okay, do your temples, do your forehead, back your hands, whatever, do it straight daily for two weeks, I'm going to see you back in two weeks, you know, you give them a little topical anesthetic before they come in, about an hour before, and then you freeze the heck out of them because you've got twice as many subclinicals that have been demonstrated into true AKs that now you can freeze. And then you give them two weeks off so they can heal, and then you see them back, you know, after that second two weeks, which is basically a month later. So... Not only is that a strategy for beating Medicare at their game, this is maximizing the effect of the drug as well as maximizing the impact of, of liquid nitrogen where it fits. And I probably would do this cycle a couple times a year on somebody who has you know, really aggressive you know, photodamage disease, but also this would be a, a good way to maximize the outcome for what we're trying to do with the topicals and where they fit. Okay, just to show you here, there was a study done against a 2.5% strength versus the 3.75, which is the one that came to market. But what's important here is that this is a sustained clearance looking at the six-month arm, which is yellow, and the 12-month arm, which is blue. And you can see that even after just that six-week of, uh, of duration of treatment, we still had pretty significant clearance, even up to 42%, uh, sorry, 17 out of the 42 versus 28 out of the 42 in the six-month group maintained clearance at least up to 40 to 50%, you know, almost a year later. Okay, so keep those in mind also. Again, it goes back to that reliability of saying how often are we needing to see those patients back, but also what if they fall in the cracks and we can't see them back as, as soon as we need to. Okay, and so that kind of sums up with <clears throat> what I was trying to get at here, looking at week eight and then with, at uh, six months and 12 months, 66% of those patients had some sustained clearance at six months again, and 40% or more had sustained clearance. And again, Complete clearance is not what we see in the office. We're really concerned about lesion reduction, the amount of actual photo damage perception, some sort of grading scale that we know that we can document and follow each time. Complete clearance for an FDA-surveyed study is pretty rigorous criteria. So keep that in mind. That's not what we do in the office. That's what they do to put a drug on the market, and we want to follow that number of reliability a little more carefully. <coughs> Excuse me. So if you look at some of the comparisons of reactions, I know this is a little bit busy as far as the photos, but take a look at the two weeks arm, which is the second photo. I don't know if you guys can see the two weeks arm here. This is where the activity of the drug is at its maximum, then four weeks. But look at the comparison of the reactions. Some people are still going to light up, and they'll still show some brisk reactions. So we still have to make sure that they're counseled on you know, moisturizing regularly, using things like topical sarna or, or promoxine, for example, to reduce any symptoms they might have from the application. Make sure they're using sunblock over it, but make sure they're also staying away from steroids because, remember, steroids are going to undo what Amiquimod's trying to accomplish. It's not like the old days of 5-FU and triamcinolone where they used to rotate the two together. We don't do that with Amiquimod because it undoes everything we're trying to accomplish. But what's important to recognize here in the 14-week study, or the 14 weeks picture, is those patients look pretty clear. And those reaction patterns die down with very little residual, as well as very little lesion count at the end. Okay? So that's really what we're trying to accomplish by getting a lower strength of Micromod, still accomplishes the same goal, probably a little bit easier dosage pattern, but also a little bit more friendly on the skin and without the heavy-duty um, erythema. And again, I go back to this concept of where do we freeze. You know, you, if you're doing photodynamic therapy, you can put it in the exact same framework. You have maximum subclinical expression. That's maybe the time to put them in the hoop. You can put them in with, you know, on systemic retinoids. You can use, you know, the other therapies the same way. But you want to maximize that, sub, that therapeutic interval of the drug as well as giving them a holiday at the right times so that they can tolerate things at, at a different dosage protocol than before.
Let's just switch gears and talk a little bit about some of the other antioxidant therapies. Again, the, uh, the new drug Verigen, which you hear about for, for uh, genital warts, is also having some utility in uh, Australia and uh, some other places where they're studying it for AKs and skin cancer. Again, going back to the, the cytokine release and the antioxidant effects. <clears throat> we'll see probably a little bit more as far as how it affects you know, the component of the epidermis as far as the photo damage in the nitric oxide areas. But keep in mind, too, that HPV, and I'll, I'll get into this as far as the transplant crowd, HPV has a role in the development of squamous cell carcinoma in organ transplant patients and the immunosuppressed crowd. So we might be seeing more and more of this data come out as things go by. Same thing with the peplin drug, which is called Inganol Mebutate, as I mentioned. comes from a plant extract. There are some phase three trials that are probably getting underway. They've just finished some phase two trials on AKs and basal cell. But what's interesting is this is a twice application drug, and then the effects are sustained between 30 and 60 days, looking at how they work. And <clears throat> they've struggled with, a, with finding the optimal percentage of strength, and I think they've come on to either 0.0175 as in this picture, or they might even go towards 0.05% based on what we're hearing about in, the, in some of the studies that are underway. But again, here's the application of the drug on different sites. And you see they, they go through the erythema and some localized necrosis effects, as we talked about. And then looking at it 60 days later, showing some clearance of those lesions again. So this might be a good you know, application point for some of those patients who, again, are lost to follow-up, who we can only see them twice a year. Maybe they pay for their own drugs out of pocket. We don't know how much these are going to cost, but again, we put everything into a framework of what fits right for that different patient. Let's just touch on uh, basal cell carcinoma for a minute. This was uh, a study done a couple years ago about Tazerac, <clears throat> where it could fit application-wise. You know, we have you know, the potential utility on the retinoids as far as what they do locally as well as systemically. The problem with this is, you know, using it once daily for 24 weeks is quite a bit of treatment time for a topical, and we don't know how much growth of the basal cell has gone from, from zero to where they came in to 24 weeks later. It still might be growing while the slow treatment's in place. But I found to, you know, the topical retinoids to be a really good adjunct to a lot of the different treatments we do, not just destructive-wise, but topically. <clears throat> this was a study done on superficial basal cell with 5-FU. Again, just looking at 31 patients with different lesions, treating twice a day for 12 weeks. I mean, that's pretty aggressive therapy for, for topical 5-FU. And what's more important is, again, for superficial basal cell, you get the extension from the epidermis into the dermis. It's not the same as treating a nodular basal cell, which is isolated in the dermis. And that's the, really the, the problem with spot treating with, with 5-FU, as I mentioned, is we don't know how much of the actinic keratosis that's developing is linked to the squamous cell carcinoma that's already on its way. So that's why, again, we're, we have to be really aggressive as far as our surveillance, but also thinking about the mechanism of the drug and where it actually may have its you know, downfall as far as with not treating through the whole uh, disease state. <clears throat> this is, again, where you know, it's mentioned, you know, as far as patients who spot treat on their own, we have to make sure in our 5-FU patients that they're keeping an eye out for where they're treating, that there's not anything underneath or that there's nothing they can't feel, and not just going after something. They say, well, it's a little bit dry, so I put 5-FU on it, because they could be missing the dermal component of something that's already growing that we may have to do a little bit extra surgery on. Okay? Think about things like you know, basal cell this cancer, of, of this size, someone who's not a surgical candidate, what kind of options do we have? Well, this is one of my, <clears throat> excuse me, one of my patients from the desert when I worked out in, in, uh, in California. And <clears throat> this guy comes in, he says, well, my mosquito bite's not getting better. And I looked at him, I said, yeah, that's exactly what it is. And so he had tried you know, Neosporin and all sorts of stuff on it. And I said, okay, well, let's, let's go after it. And we, we put Aldara on him for uh, every day. 
And you can see, you know, this answers a couple of things about can we use it safely around the eye, but also what's going to be happening. And if you see here, there's not just the tumor, but the margin of the tumor being developed, as well as all of the photodamaged antigen being surveyed, even in areas where he's not applying it. So that just shows you there's a cytokine response being recruited, as well as an inflammatory response against target antigens that are around the tumor. Okay? But for me to have him say use it around the eye was pretty safe because we had him put a Q-tip in his medial canthus. We had him close around, moisturize real aggressively, and put aquaphor on the areas that got a little bit heavy. But it also saved him a pretty aggressive surgery that he just wasn't willing to have. <clears throat> What's more important here is, again, you get a nice brisk reaction. And here's the epidermal change he had from scratching at the whole spot. But if you see him at 12 weeks, I mean, he came in and he was gone. I mean, there was no tumor left. And we followed him every month for the rest of that year, and there was no recurrence in that whole area. So that was a pretty good outcome for, for someone who didn't want to have any surgery. But again, it shows that there's safety of using it around the eye. There's really no concern with how much we, we have to watch for, but we do have to be careful how much is going to light up because those patients need to be aware of the reaction patterns as well as how to, how to manage them. This was a study done on, on using it with the curatage and no electrodesiccation, basically waiting a couple days for the base to get a little bit less moist and then putting the the cream on every day for six weeks. And what they found was that at six weeks, here's the end of resolution of treatment with a little bit of erythema at the scar. And then 26 weeks later, still a little bit of dyschromia at the treatment site. But again, you get some clearance of the tumor that gives that patient a chance to heal where they might have not been able to tolerate a bigger surgery. Oops, sorry. And finally, just looking at um, another you know, five-year clearance data of treatment with, with topical amicumab. Again, it goes back to that patient subtype that we might lose or fall through the cracks. 25 centers in Europe did, treated a whole bunch of different patients and looked at them five years out. And those patients who were treated stayed clear at three years, four years, and five years at those different rates. So, I mean, again, it, there is a reliability in treatment, but we still have to follow those patients you know, through the year, at least that first year, just like we would do if we did MOS or EDNC on them. We still have to follow them carefully to make sure that they're not going through any stages of recurrence. <clears throat> now, what about chemo prevention for the long term? And again, this is all off-label use of, of retinoids, including acetretin, which is now coming out in different dosage, which we'll talk about in a minute. But there's, there's two strategies for treating that immunosuppressed crowd. And, you know, again, we used to just think of the transplant patients. Now we have to, again, think of the diabetics, the patients with CLL, patients who are high risk of squamous cell, patients who've had multiple squamous cells. Where do they fit in in a chemo prevention standpoint? Because maybe a low dose of retinoids every day reduces their risk over time, but it's also thinking about do we balance any potential side effects, any lipid issues, any issues with osteoporosis, all against the potential benefits of slowing down their risk of skin cancer. So it's important to keep in mind there is a benefit-risk ratio, but for me, if we're keeping patients out of having surgery more often than not, I think that's a good outcome for, and a good indication for treating someone with the low-dose retinoid every day. So this is the new strategy. You've heard about acetretin for many years. It's now under the name seriotane. 10, 25, and 50 milligrams. The, the original capsules were 10 and 25. Now they're going to be 17 and a half and uh, 22 and a half. And you're going to be hearing a little bit more about those as they get released to market. So the new seriotane dosage, keep in mind 17 and a half and 22 and a half, which to me makes a little bit of sense because rather than having to rotate or say, all right, let's start at 10 and work up to 25, we can keep someone at 17 and a half and not have to worry too much about their potential side effects or outcomes. And these are just some studies. This is all in your handout. But looking again at these two in particular, you know, 30 milligrams a day and, you know, 0.3 milligrams per gig a day, looking at how much reduction over time 
you know, four years, three years out. This is, again, not something that patients are going to see an endpoint. You're not going to put them on systemic retinoids and say, okay, well, three months later, you're better. This is say, okay, because of your risk of skin cancer, we're going to have you on this for a couple of years, and you'll see over time we're going to need to freeze you less. You'll probably have fewer incidents of skin cancer that we'll have to do surgery on, and really you have to watch the endpoint with them. So one thing I, I think is important, too, in the, in the, if you see transplant patients is there are high levels of human papillomavirus in their, in their skin, basically, but also you know, they develop those benign verrucal keratoses. They have higher levels of warts, and there are HPV particles seen in their squamous cell carcinoma tumors. And we found from some of the head and neck tumors that HPV is an integral part of their development. So is there a role for the HPV vaccine in chemo prevention for some of those high-risk patients? And we might see some of that data come down the pike because, again, there's looking at you know, the head and neck data in those cancers where they actually show different particles of HPV-16 developing in some tumors. So we may hear more and more about this over time, especially in some of those high-risk patients that, that would be a good candidate for for therapy. But <clears throat> one thing I want to implore with everybody is think about how our oncology colleagues or our OBGYN colleagues treat cancer. We're not, they're not just doing things with surgery. They treat through the disease, they treat through the prevention stage, but they use different modalities. They use chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery, and different protocols, different you know, patient types. Why aren't we doing the same thing, and why aren't we thinking about how do we prevent the disease, how do we treat through it, and how do we treat past it? And that's really how our approach to skin cancer and actinic keratosis should be. So we might hear a little bit more about some of these future agents, but again, these are things that are all experimental right now, and you'll um, hear a little bit more about this as the, as the years come up. So I wanted to leave a little time for questions for you guys. Um, so anyone has anything, uh, come out up to the microphone and thank you. And contrary to popular belief, this is not Photoshopped. This is in this is in Tasmania, so it's very pretty. But uh, if you could, just, this is all being recorded, so if you could state your name, where you practice, and uh, go ahead. Um, thank you for your talk, and I'm Claire Whiteman. I practice in Denver, Colorado, at About Skin Dermatology. Um, I'm wondering, we, I actually see a lot of renal cell transplant patients, and you know they're on numerous different medications. Do you put them on seritane as well? I, I work with, a, if I'm treating anybody with transplant, I always get their doctor's blessing, obviously. Yeah. But I probably incorporate them on retinoids pretty quickly if I, as far as their uh, screening protocol. And I, I look at it as far as, okay, are we balancing any interactions with our other drugs which are minimal? You know, kind of want to survey for their lipids, what's their you know, bone density, especially in a, in a kidney transplant patient. But I think more importantly is, you know, think about how do we titrate up and then maintain them on, on retinoids, you know, and my usual protocol is like 10 milligrams a day of seriatine or even every other day until I get to uh, some steady state with them. Okay. And I, one other question. Um, for those patients who have very minimal, you know, they're not even hypertrophic AKs, um, do you treat all of those? Or is, what is the percentage that the, their own immune system will come in and actually get rid of them anyway? Typically, there's you know. about 20% clearance of the mutation antigen being cleared. And, and if you remember in that initial piece, you know, the uh, P53 suppressor gene mutation, those products can be cleared somewhat spontaneously. The problem is, in, again, it, over time, with the amount of immunosuppression that you see in a localized area, your, their ability to heal and survey for those products is less. So I'm, I'm a little less trusting in someone who's 
50 who used to work outdoors for years versus someone who's 30 and has a few early ones. But for me, that's also saying, okay, maybe we get the ball rolling with something like, you know, the news like Clara, for example, or something that if they're having a few areas, we give them some topical retinoids and get the epidermal turnover going, and then we freeze the ones that we see and then keep them going. So, for example, if you got someone who's just temples or someone who used to drive a truck or is outdoors and it just has left-sided versus right-sided, they've got some superficial AKs, that's a good justification for treating the whole field area and you know, treating them again three months later or six months later, but I would probably freeze the ones I see you know, and then give them some of that reassurance. Okay, thank you. Yeah, right. Yes, I'm Ed Blanchard. I practice in Pennsylvania. I just wanted to know if you could disclose a little bit about your relationship with Graceway, the company that makes Amiquamon. Oh, sure. Well, I've, I've been in uh, <clears throat> practice for about 13, 14 years, and my background's in immunology. And um, when I was first, you know, get, coming out of residency, I was doing a lot of work on immunology in my uh, research. And uh, I started <clears throat> acting as a consultant for Graceway back in 2001. And I've been giving speaking, uh, lectures for them. I, I've done some articles on the topical management of skin cancer. I've spoken at a whole bunch of different meetings. But my direct relationship to Graceway has been more of a consultant. I've done a couple of their clinical trials. And I've um, spoken at different meetings on actinic keratosis skin cancer that they've either given grants to or, or sponsored directly. But my, my bias towards treatment comes to the process and Again, I think imiquimod is a good drug. It's done a lot of wonders for you know, what we see as the process. I think every drug has its place. I, I use Solarase pretty routinely. I use 5-FU on my candidates. I have patients on, um, on, on systemic retinoids you know, pretty routinely if I can get them to stay with it. So you know, I, I write drugs that, uh, that work. If they happen to, to fit into somebody's drug company, good for them. Yeah. Um, Fran Moore, I work at the Cleveland Clinic. And we're, you didn't cover this, but you mentioned PDT, and we do a lot of blue light, and now we're seeing sure. a, a tremendous uh, promise in red light. How do you think that fits in with You know, I, I have to admit my experience with red light is not very extensive. I have a blue light in my office. Um, I wanted to keep the focus on this more about topicals, but the, the utility with red light is probably the same as liquid nitrogen as far as, you know, treating the field area, treating the process and using everything in combination. I, th I think the key with some of these patients who might be a little bit older, for example, or you're treating more surface area, is give them adequate holiday in between the treatment times, maybe working uh, towards you know, a couple weeks on and off treatment or cycle treatments with them. But I, I would think you know, red light, are you using more with IPL or with the... Pardon me? Are you using an IPL device or what are you using the red light with? No, it's actually, uh, it, we just started, it's just a, it's a plate that's plate, actually yeah. okay. a red light. It's not IPL. Right. Yeah, I, I've heard multiple different ways of applying the red right. light. Right. So I, I mean, they get a vigorous light. reaction, but it's gone in two days rather than a week. Gotcha. As okay. the blue light. But the blue light, I mean, we, we're using it like maybe twice a year on the patients that we're doing all of these other topicals as well. Sure. But again, they're transplant patients, they're elderly patients, you know, and again, it's field. Yeah. Field I mean, to me, those, the ideal photodynamic patient is someone who's elderly, who's got a, you know, a good scalp or a good face. And I'm treating them through topically, giving them a little holiday, and then exactly. expressing as many subclinicals and then treating them Thank with you. PDT. Yeah. Hi. Uh, Tim August from uh, Western North Carolina. Uh, I haven't used the new imiquimod yet. 
uh, I'm curious, what is the difference in cost and the amount dispensed compared mm -hmm. to Aldera? Well, I'm not as familiar with cost as, as every different region is going to be different. I know the, the packaging comes at 28 packets versus 24. They're individual as far as their you know, size like they were with the old Aldara. I've found that my coverage so far with the rebate cards has been pretty good. I do know that a lot of pharmacies are eager to substitute it for the new generic. And my advice to, to you is not only protecting the prescriptions, but I also write on there the specific dosage protocol daily for two weeks and off for two weeks, then on for two weeks so that you're staying on label. If you can use a three-month supply pharmacy, I found that to be a lot more effective as far as avoiding substitution because 3.75 is not 5%. You get many more benefits without a lot of the bad outcomes, for example. Like I showed you some of those, those patients that I had with brisk reactions. We're getting some reactions that are brisk but not as vigorous, and we're still getting some, some clearance, which I think is... So it is packets. Oh it's still God. in packets. My, the, it's funny because I've been listening to this concept about tube for about 12 years now, and my argument is three for why it shouldn't be in a tube. For one, it, it's stable in a packet because if you open and close a tube, you're oxidizing the active ingredients. And this is not benzoyl peroxide. I mean, we're, we're dealing with a strong immunomodulating agent that's equivalent to chemotherapy. The second reason is it's a dose-limiting packet, which you can apply surface area. You know, if you want to maximize a scalp, I put like one part of, you know, moisturizer, one part of Zyclera, mix it together, and you can cover that much more surface area. And, you know, same with back of the hands, you can rotate around, or if you, you know, I've, I've actually put it on my neck and my, you know, cheeks to see what it feels like, and it spreads pretty easy. So you can get good surface area out of it and maximize a packet through that course. But, you know, for me, the nice thing about it being in the package is I know which drug the patients have. You know, they'll, they'll say, well, I got the drug you gave me. I say, well, which one? They say, well, it's the one in the package. I say, okay. You know, it's not the tube that they got, you know, for 30,000 different things. And is, is there a maximum treatment surface area that they can What they showed in the time? study was 200 centimeters versus 25 centimeters in the old 5%. Honestly, I treat as much as we have to. Okay. I, I, don't, I don't limit it at all. And if we... if Someone needs it, I give it to them. If they need two packets a day, you know, let them have it. Thank you. Yeah. Go ahead. Have oh, you? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, hi, Marsha Starnes from uh, Memphis area, and um, I was just wondering if you might comment on using um, imiquimod. It doesn't matter which form on superficial basal cells in people who have not really basal cell nevus syndrome, but just multiple, multiple uh, small superficial basal cells. Yeah, I've, I've had good experience with treating the chest, for example. I've had a lot of females who were, you know, were tanners in their teen years who've got several you know, superficial basal cells, chest and shoulders. And what's, what I found to be interesting is not only they, they clear well after you know, three months you know, is my treatment time through that. I mean, I know the labeled indication is six weeks. Every day for six weeks was the 5%. I do the same thing with, with the 3.75 now, but I'm surveying them at six weeks after. So I'll treat them for six weeks and I'll see them six weeks after that. But I found them to be clear in not only the area that they were treating, but the periphery is, is clearing as well as, as any other lesion. What they originally found was you know, they were treating some spots on the right and lesions on the left were clearing up. Mm -hmm. And that's again because of the activity of the cytokines the recognition of the tumor antigen that's already in place. And if you remember looking at a microscopic picture of 
a basal cell, there's a monocytic infiltrate that's hovering the tumor, but it's not active. Imiquimod activates that infiltrate to become effective again so that it can survey for tumor antigen that's around the whole field. And, I, and I, so clinically, you know, I'm using it not just on the spots, but I'm doing a good margin around it. And I think that's the best outcome for some of those people. Great, thank you. Um, Christy from Charleston, actually, my question was very similar, so thanks. Sure. <laughs> Have you had any experience using it, or, or used, I mean, what do you treat well, normally using combination? We, have, we haven't used the Cyclera for a superficial basal cell yet, okay. but I know our supervising physician was curious if it's going to be used for that or if we have to stick with Aldera, so. Well, we, I, I, I know the labeled indication says one thing. Right. I'm, I'm using it for everything, okay. but I'm not using it alone because, you know, I want to treat the photodamaged area as well. I might put them again if there's high risk on low dose of psoriatin if they're not a female, for example, or I'm using topical retinoids with it. Um, I've used atrolin, you know, as the gel base because it actually seems to, to spread pretty well. But okay. more importantly is, you know, you're making sure that they're protected and you're surveying them right. aggressively. Okay, thank you. Hi, I'm Don. I'm from State College, Pennsylvania. Um, I have a question regarding, you were talking about mixing the Zyclera with moisturizer? Correct. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And you do that at a one-to-one -one ratio? Yeah. And do you get any dilution of your effect by well, doing that? That's an important conception because you're not really getting a, um, you're not, you're, you don't have a percentage that's being diluted by the quantity. All you're trying to get a micromod to do is get to the dendritic cells to stimulate their response against antigen. So you're really not diluting the target that Imiquimod's working on. It's really just getting to the point of penetrating so that the immune system that's already in motion can get a little bit more, you know, stimulated. And does, so, it, does it matter what moisturizer? I mean, do you have a preference? No, I, I like, I mean, Cetaphil spreads a little, little bit better than some of the others, especially on the, on the face or the chest. Depends how hairy somebody is versus if you're treating a face or the body. Um, I don't really have a, a, a preference. I know CeraVe has a, a nice, you know, cream that you can use with that, but I, I really don't pick and choose that way. But I probably wouldn't do more than one-to-one. -one. Yeah. Okay. Anybody else? Okay. Well, listen, you guys. Make sure you are doing what's... Uh... <laughs>